Hello and welcome to another installation of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today I'm joined by David, Abby, Rabba, James to discuss securing the multi-cloud. There's a for professionals in the sector that maybe want to learn more about securing the multi-cloud, but also for businesses that are looking to potentially use the multi-cloud environment within their organization. Before we delve deeper into the topic, I'll work around the room with some introductions. So, David, do you want to kick us off off with a uh, brief introduction? Yeah, certainly. Uh, my name is David Frith. I'm uh, Director of uh, Cloud Security at NCC. So that is both in a external view of customers, um, advising customers um, in terms of projects and um reporting etc they got choir and also internally um advising the internal team as needed around our own internal cloud footprint so that's me perfect and uh avi if you'd like to introduce yourself sure uh thanks morgan so my name is abhijit uh i am in the head of cloud for tcs uh, which is obviously a large it services company however i work with the corporate it within tcs so our focus is uh, throughout this is to degree across so cloud architecture, security, SRE, and FinOps. Yeah, and uh, Robert. Sure. Uh, my name is Robert Abdul Galil. I'm the director of cloud engineering in Intel, that is a uh, SaaS company offering solutions for financial services across the globe. Uh, that's me. And James. Yeah, so I'm James. I'm head of uh, cloud security engineering for a large financial services company called Apex. Um, I head up the team. Um, we have a two pillars underneath me, one of which is focused around engineering, so all security tooling, most of which is in the cloud, and also the security consultancy as well, so providing security advice and guidance to projects and programs um, internal to the business. Perfect. So now we're all introduced and everybody knows who we are, uh, we'll move on to the topic in focus. Um, so as usual with the podcast, I've asked everybody in the room to sort of pose a question with the uh, reasoning behind it. Um, so I'll start with one of the ones uh, that were posed to us, which was the different definitions of multi-cloud and the deployment of those from basic hybrid to integrated to dynamic portability. And I believe, David, this was one of your questions. So I'll, I'll come to you uh, first off to talk us through. Yeah, I think it was one of my questions. I can't quite remember now. <clears throat> but yes, this is um, you know something that we get from customers um, you know, how can I advance in my multi-cloud um, view and how can I enable, enable portability and interoperability of workloads between different clouds? And I think what we see is really three main elements. And so we see multi-cloud sort of basic use, if I could call it that, where you've got different teams in AWS or Azure or Google Cloud or Oracle Infrastructure Cloud and never the twain shall meet. So they're siloed teams, um, they've got their own um, patch, um, and you know there isn't really much integration in terms of identities or workloads, and that's probably about 90% of customers at the moment. <clears throat> then there's a second, uh, much smaller element around um, cloud being used in a coordinated way um, from a deliberate strategy um, from seniors in an organization so there, there's a kind of cohesive um, architecture um, and um, strategy around integrated security, monitoring, use of identities, management of keys, etc. And that's probably about 
I'd say about 9% of customers at the moment that we see, but that's going to increase a lot over the next two or three years. And then there's a kind of final um, holy grail of cloud, which is having fully movable workloads across any environment, uh, primarily using microservices, Kubernetes um, as a de facto standard, and being able to orchestrate cloud native workloads and between you know using things like google anthos or openshift between different clouds and that's probably about one or two percent of customers at the moment so that's really the you know the three that we're seeing james you mentioned uh you put your hand up yeah i think the thing for me is that the the dynamic portability is obviously the end state for lots of places it's just the the roadmap to get there i think the other thing i mean that we're trying to also do an apex that is adding some real value is cross cloud bursting so it's that automation between you know not just having different silos and different bits and pieces all over the different clouds but actually having that automation to go you know this service is now heavily stressed so we've suddenly got a massive influx of resource needed here and rather than it purely bursting in its own Azure silo or AWS silo, the ability for, you know, that, that compute power to be separated over the different cloud tenants. And obviously there has to be some sort of application level um ability to do that baked in. So I think the, the big thing for me is how quickly do we think vendors can start building that into their, you know, their new apps that are up and coming and how seamlessly that will work in the, the short to medium term. And rubber, you agree hand raise that. Cheers, folks. Uh, for me, I guess, so I worked with uh, multi cloud in various companies, uh, including Sky, which is a massive, massive footprint on public and private clouds. The thing with uh, portability, to me, in my view, so far, just a marketing term rather than actual production grade thing, the, re- the main reason, the main challenge here is data. It's okay, you'll have your application, you'd say, on cloud. But what happens to your data, right? And if you want your data also to be portable, that means that you will need to forego a lot of the benefits of public cloud by using a lot of the managed services for various databases and messaging. So the, the complexity is super, super high here. And I guess one of the key questions would be the cost, because uh, as you guys all know, ingress between all the clouds is super expensive. And without basically keeping a tap on that, it can easily bankrupt the customer. Um, so I'll, I'll be very, very interested in seeing a big use case for portability with data across clouds. And, uh, Avi, you've got your hand raised there. Uh, you want to add? Yeah. Thanks, Martin. I think, uh, I would chime in with, uh, what, and I agree with what Rabe said. I think, uh, multi-cloud, it, it sounds really great and great in theory, and it's a great thing for CIOs to be worried about because, you know, you are always worried about being vendor logged into a vendor and you know what if they raise the prices what do i do about that then and but uh, if we the assessment that we have done and if I, if the way i look at it is that if you really try to do multi cloud it kind of locks you into the bare minimum that you can use on any cloud i think we talked about you can't really use managed services you can't really benefit from anything the cloud really offers because if you want to keep it portable you are going to have to use only things that are available across all clouds effectively locking you into using the bare minimum possible services. So anything good, anything anything you you can benefit from in terms of speed of development, speed of deployment, you can't really use it. The second, I think, is that uh, the benefit, the only real benefit 
uh, the only strategic benefit from multi-cloud is not really about operations, uh, operational uh, benefit or uh, benefit in terms of technology. The only real benefit comes from the fact it's a commercial benefit. It's a commercial bet. If you are moving, if you are moving to a cloud, if you have a great deal, and if you expect that you at some point will be in a position where you may have a disagreement with the vendor and you might have to pull out. So you have to only be prepared for that rather than depending on uh, a lot of technology tooling to be able to port in real time. Potentially more beneficial to have the ability to port on demand in a given time frame. So it shouldn't take you five years to move off. But if you can say, okay, I will be able to move off in, let's say, you know, any year's time. If I have a commercial disagreement, if, I, if somebody is giving me a great rate, then that makes sense. So data, as Rabbi said, data is a huge thing. You can't, I think there's a term, right? A very common term called data gravity. You can't really move from one to another because you have data on one cloud. Moving that itself is a huge thing. If you try to do it real time, you incur the cost in real time. So the way I look at it is multi-cloud portability. It's a break glass model. You do it only when you really have to do it, not as a part of your day-to-day -day work or you say, okay, I will run my application half here, half there. That's not really, that just doesn't have the benefit that it seems like on the surface of it. And do you, just to add to this, do you, do you think it's something that maybe one day could have the, the benefit of using multiple or is it a, a case of just maybe it's it's just not there yet or is it just better to sort of go for one over the other? I think you, you only get, you would only have a real benefit uh, from something like this. If there is a very close tie-up, I think uh, sometime back, I, quite some time back, in fact, Microsoft and Oracle Cloud did a deal where you could use Oracle databases on OCI uh, while the, the rest of the application was on the Microsoft stack the Azure stack. And the idea being that they were so they were kind of hosted together uh, and connected through black fiber. So you could benefit from that. But those are very, very rare use cases. You have to ensure that the vendors will keep playing together. So it doesn't seem to be something that is going to be very viable in the near future. Not as a real-time thing. As a break glass thing, absolutely, I agree that large enterprises should have a break glass multi-cloud portability model, but not a real-time model. Yeah, we did see, we did some work with a large media company and they were using... Google Anthos, um, Kubernetes services, both on-prem in wider GCP and also migrating it um, for some workloads over to AWS. So that was portable really because of the news, the stories, the articles that they had. So that was one use case and that was a large, large organization, I guess, on the egress side. Um, yeah, it's not, um, it's not common, but there are folks such as DigitalOcean who are uh, egress um, cost free? Um, it's not, uh, you know, a wide, widely adopted model. Um, certainly not from the big hyperscalers, but it is there in some of the smaller um, services, particularly um, in Europe. So yeah, it, it's it's a mixed bag, and it's a, a nascent, um, I suppose, nascent use case at the moment, and a nascent, um, you know, mode of operating. And um... So yeah, I think I think we basically covered the first sort of question there. So I'll I'll move on to the uh, the next one, which is one that uh, Avi, I believe you've uh, put across. And um, obviously, with more and more companies transitioning to the cloud, uh, how do we balance the necessity of keeping the organization secure on the cloud, but at the same time enabling the developers and the engineers to leverage the cloud for maximum innovation? Yeah, I'll just add a little bit of that. So I think uh, the the question that I have is around. Uh, it's very difficult for people, especially in enterprises, to keep up with uh, the speed at which the cloud services keep coming out, right? Uh, 
And uh, people love to go and read documentation, to look at a demo and then come back and say, hey, this is great. I, well, can I use it to my application from the, you know, can I do this? Can I do this next day? I'm sure a lot of everybody here who actually uses Azure, you would have been inundated with requests for accessing OpenAI the day after it came out because everybody wants to do chat GPT, some in some way or the other. So yeah, that, that's the question. How do you kind of uh, ensure that you are able to move fast enough or you're able to give them what they really need while at the same time keep it uh, secure enough? Ravi, you've got your uh, hand raised, huh? Uh, for me, our approach to this challenge is making sure that the security policies that we have in place is really programmatic and really embedded in the processes. So whatever they can consume can be secured as much as possible. When it comes to uh, something that's super, super new, um, before it can actually be used in production with specifically with customer data, uh, we have to get uh, kind of uh, an architecture just review just to make sure that we the data of our customers are safe and secure because otherwise we'll all end up in all the news. Um, but yeah, like uh, it's for me, it's super critical that we're, we're never as a security feature, we're never in, in, in the path of the developers or innovations. Uh, on the opposite, should also we are all we should always be helping them move faster. And the way to achieve that, in my view, and that's what I do, is to make sure it's integrated in the policy. So it's seamless, right? It's not in their way. But at the same time, as a, as an organization, give us the right assurance as it should be. James, you want to add? Yeah, I think the big thing for me building on that is it's around those guardrails and patterns. So the the guardrails have to be there in the patterns for you know all the developers or all of the, the programmers to use. But actually, it's making sure that those aren't just imposed on those developers or the you know the, those engineers. It's you know before those patterns come into being, making sure that you know they are happy with them. It's that two-way conversation because ultimately security has to be there to to act as that compliance level. But we also can't be a blocker. We've got to be an enabler. So actually, if we can demonstrate value to the business or to the developers or whoever is going actually you know, we've we've worked with them to come up with these really useful sets of patterns and guardrails then you get a better response than just going you can't do this or you can't do that so it's it's being able to have those conversations and i think the other thing is it's implementing something like security scorecards or something like that so so for different projects having a, a way of measuring security levels and actually as and when those change those might go up, they might go down, but at least the security is aware of that rather than it coming as a nasty shock. And if it goes up, wonderful. And if it goes down, it's understanding the reason for that and making sure that we've still got the right controls in place, that even if the security level has got worse, we're still not you know, in position that we might be breached or something like that might happen. Yeah. And I guess it's being a bit more prepared, isn't it, from, from that standpoint? So you're not sort of facing any shocks like you were saying. Avi, you wanted to add I just wanted to kind of ask a follow-up question to both James and Rape. Uh, so you talked about, so uh, when you say programmatic security, do you have any aspect of the life cycle where you, there is a manual step that comes into play or are you completely dependent on the uh, controls that are added to the either DevSecOps life cycle or you're using CSPM and things like that? I think for me, in an ideal world, it depends. Um, so in an ideal world, you know, we would have a completely automated a new project or new program or something can be spun up and security knows that everything's being done. But back in the real world, I think that's never going to happen because you know, the next project that the next developer comes up with might use some completely new bit of software like ChatGPT that you mentioned. Yeah, that we can't plan for everything that's coming up on the horizon. There's certainly value in the security team having sort of a proactive approach of going out and looking for the latest industry trends rather than getting caught on the back foot. 
But unfortunately, with this, you know, without unlimited resources and money and time, that's never going to happen. So until you know, it, it's got to be that we've got you know, 80% of the stuff covered in patterns and guardrails and the 20% that we haven't, we're, we're able as a team to work quickly to come up with those new guardrails. So again, the developers can still go away and do whatever they want to do without security being seen as that blocker. I think, David, uh, you yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, in terms of the patterns and guardrails, Obviously, those need to be enforced, and there's, you know, CNAP, cloud-native application, um, protection-type um, tools and platforms that can enable that. Um, so integrating security and compliance, um, as well as, um, you know, development at speed and being able to make um, and develop uh, cloud-native applications. I think that's one side from the IS PaaS side of things. I guess the other thing and the elephant in the room is really around SaaS security, SaaS um, being the predominant mode um, of uh, you know consumption of cloud, um, and that ranges from uh, you know helping and uh, providing security right from the kind of SaaS management platforms that give visibility and some automation um, through to CASBs, um, security access brokers. Um, to more advanced um, capabilities around security posture management. Um, and there's a whole bunch of vendors there that continuously um, assess SaaS risks um, and management and also um, cloud data protection gateways as well, um, which combine a whole bunch of different um, security tools and residency needs and uh, sensitive data um, review and assessment. Um, so there's a whole lot of um, tools and services and just wanted to mention the SaaS side of things as well because obviously that's important as well. Anybody got any views on that, on the SaaS side of things? That's a, it's a very, very good point, David. Okay, SaaS is uh, continuously growing, right? And the data over there is uh, um, And I think currently the data loss prevention vendors, as you say, there's a bunch out there. They play a key role in giving assurance that the data is not where it, is not, where it shouldn't be, right? And uh, that in real time is essential more than ever now and before we really can happen. I think the other thing as well is with the DLP example, it's all well good having the alert come in that you know, this data's left our estate or it's potentially vulnerable, but it's making sure those alerts are heading in the right direction to the right team and that they've also got the right you know, standard operating procedures or workbooks or something to work from because it's all you, in, in a SOC scenario, there's plenty of information coming in. It's making sure that the, the people in the SOC know what they're meant to be doing with that. And ideally, it's having those procedures drawn up before it all goes wrong. So you're, you're you know, it's well rehearsed. It's something that people know what they're doing rather than it coming in and being being a shock. And again, in an ideal world, that would happen, but that doesn't, you know, that isn't always going to be the case. That, that, that's exactly right. And also it comes back to identities as well, doesn't it? Users and devices and locations and what they can access, you know, should they be able to access um, this sensitive data or files or whatever. And that's where the, um, you know, UEBA um, type um you know, automated um, assessment of access to sensitive data and DLP and data loss prevention comes into play as well, as was mentioned. So access control is a big thing, definitely. Sorry, somebody had their hand up. Yeah, thanks, David. I think uh, 
I, I was just wondering, uh, and I think uh, the idea being that, see, uh, while we uh, obviously have lost some measures uh, with SaaS, right, but ultimately it's you are kind of limited by your inability to see inside the organization that is hosting your data, right? So you can ask them to give you a lot of reports in terms of what testing they do and what controls they're following, but you are ultimately dependent on what they them doing what they say they are doing, right? Of course, and it's contractual, right? So the real the, the real difference is the contract basically is how I would. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the, the, that's the in, in a SaaS uh, uh, when you when you use a SaaS integration effectively the contract is the only real defense you have everything sure. else is uh, you can't really see inside so you depend on how great the vendor is really at, at running the systems. I think, I think the other thing. Sorry, I was going to say, the, the thing with the contract is making sure as well that when those contracts come into being and they're signed off, it's being overse- overseen by someone with the technical knowledge because ultimately, potentially, what can happen is the contract goes into a completely different team and if they haven't got the right expertise, then things can get missed. So it's making sure that security and IT as a whole have you know, an insight into those contracts before it's being signed to make sure that we can raise the flags where necessary. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I've gone rather you, you want to swat? So, it's like question that basically builds up on this nice conversation, which is my worry is always controlling the access to the SaaS, right? It's very difficult to do that as in, in, in the organizations, you can, okay, you can control the devices that can access your network, etc. all this good stuff. But when you have SaaS and you pretty much all do, that becomes super challenging, as in, you cannot control the devices that are connected to the cells. Avi? Sorry, if I can just ask a clarifying question. Uh, Robert, do you, what, when you say devices, do you mean the end user devices or do you mean systems yeah, are putting this in? Yeah, yeah, end user devices or engineers. It's an engineer as their home laptop, right? And they connect to the SaaS, right? Mm. And then they download whatever, okay? And then this laptop gets lost. Nightmare, right? Because you can't wipe it automatically. You can't wipe it don't have the security thing. You can impose that 100%. It's your network, your parameter. Right. But if it's SaaS, this funnel. So wouldn't, wouldn't you uh, kind of, I mean, I'm assuming you would have some kind of an integration using either OpenID or SAML, right? And then you would put conditional access policy so you can only access from the TCS network, sorry, the office network or your office laptop? Uh, correct. But we basically mobility and uh, from anywhere, the challenge becomes... Right. Are, are you are you guys? Uh, uh, so one of the things that I've uh, kind of been interested in is the these uh, zero trust models, where you have something sitting on your laptop, which ensures that you're on the internet, but you're not really on the internet. You're going through some kind of a tunnel, which justly exposes you. That yeah. might be something to look at because that is still ensures that you have a known endpoint, and potentially your conditional access policy can take care of use that as a place to. And for, it can act as a BP basically. Now I put it Co- correct, but the problem is the endpoint on the SaaS side yeah. has nothing to do with your endpoint security. So, i.e., the access control is not imposed there. Yeah, I think so. The problem is that if you once you are logged into SaaS, then you're out of it. You can you can put a check when you're trying to log it, saying okay, you can't really <laughs> access. <laughs> but once you're through, then you're through. Then there's nothing you can do. Right? You're right, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so I, I guess uh, moving on to the sort of next question, uh, James, you, you asked sent a question of uh, how can a consistent security posture be established across various cloud platforms? If you if you want to delve into that a bit, bit further, yeah. So I think inevitably businesses, organisations will have some form of multi-cloud 
you know, approach, be that a, a very basic hybrid one all the way through to the, you know, the, the next generation of possibility. But I think from a security lens, we have to ensure that the security posture or the security policy set or the guardrails are consistent across those different technologies and that those are measurable. So you know, they need to feed into KPIs and KRIs and, and all of those bits of data ha- have value. So I think some of the, the really common ways of securing so having consistent security posture is having some sort of third-party broker or a, a, a posture manager effectively that can have access into all of these different vendors' clouds and, and have some way of f- feeding back into the, the central security team of potentially any risks in those SaaS solutions. It's if there's any other ways of having that consistency across the board. I think there's probably three things there, aren't there? There's the insourcing model where you do it yourself, where you've got you know, cloud management platforms or whatever it is, and being able to give you a single pane of glass and visibility of provisioning and uh, management and analytics right across your cloud estate. Um, The other way is outsourcing, where you've got a managed service provider or security service provider, or you've got a multi-cloud managed service provider um, doing the same thing right across cloud. And that's sort of I suppose that's come out of the cloud broker um, market that you talked about, and they can help with, um, you know, managing and that system integration and managed hosting and, you know, full service outsourcing. Um, And then there's the kind of bit in the middle where you use um, some third-party tools, files as a service or um, API protection or whatever, um, and you put it in front of your clouds. I'm thinking about things like Cloudflare and Barracuda and that kind of thing um, for do you know to do the security and API protection. So there's I suppose there's three models there, and it really depends on what your business case is and how large you are and what your budget is and all the rest of it. Thoughts on that? I think I think uh, I have a probably a technical perspective on this uh, than a organizational perspective to be honest. So I think one of the problems that I uh, kind of see is that. Uh, each of these clouds, while they're very similar, implementation-wise, in terms of how you implement a specific control, they're they are different on how they uh, from how in terms of how they behave. So one of the things that kind of uh, seems interesting to me is to try and create a baseline security policy, which is which just talks about what what should be done, right? And then you map that to a specific implementation detail, some kind of an ADR, for the lack of a better word, and then you link that ADR back to you know either a Ulumi template or a Terraform template. Right? The idea being that, uh, and obviously there is the security posture management tool, right? CSPM and things like that, which will keep telling you problems. So you have to establish a uh, kind of a infinity loop between the two, between the CSPM and your templates. So that every time you have something on the CSPM that comes up, or every time you have a specific control that you want to implement, that gets fed back into your uh, platform engineering team or the DevOps team. So that they update the templates and you are basically not fixing the same issue over and over again. When you create something that point, so it's prevent rather than cure is how I put it. James, you want to say something? Yeah, I think the other thing is is building into all of those is having some sort of second pair of eyes approach. So be that a, a fully fledged pen test or a, you know, a third party audit or something like that, but having that 
ability for someone to come in with a, a fresh pair of eyes and sort of look at the things that are being done well and also to highlight the things that aren't being done well and i think if we can move to some form of like you were mentioning you know, having a high level standard that says you must have a password on your account and then the way that that password is done to those accounts is obviously more brand new in the actual SaaS solution makes a really big difference so i think not only having the standard policies, but actually having those well communicated across the different engineering teams in those cloud spaces, because there has to be the knowledge of those engineers as they're setting up those you know, controls or those new programs or whatever, that this is what needs to be done. And then their expertise tells them how to go away and do it. And I think the other really big thing is having some form of almost self-healing type controls in place. So actually having those continual audit reports that are built into the different platforms coming away and telling us you know, this account hasn't got MFA enabled on it. So actually it self-heals itself and tells us that it has re-added it back to the conditional access policy in Microsoft's example. So it's it's taking it slightly out of the hands of the engineer sometimes and making sure that we're we're knowing what those problems are and also having the ability to automate the fixing for it. I suppose some of that comes down to the scoring, doesn't it, in terms of benchmarks and frameworks. And we're seeing a lot of folks using common um, benchmarks like CIS or NIST, etc. And they put that into, um, you know, your Defender for Cloud or your AWS Security Hub or your Google Security Command Center. And because it's a dynamic audit, you say, well, you know, you're 78% compliant and then a month later you're 82% compliant, et cetera. It gives you a running a running view. I think one of the things around that is those tools and methods tend to be quite siloed and bespoke for what they're looking at. Yes, there is, you know, some multi-cloud um, capability there, but it's very sort of nascent at the moment. And again, then there's the egress type costs as well. I think that also sort of leads on to the sort of final question that um, we had as as well, which is um, the sort of business considerations before even deploying a multi-cloud service in, in over maybe a company that has been in this, a singular cloud service for such a long time, or even has maybe not, not used it before, is the sort of business cases for or against it if anybody has any thoughts on that. I suppose there's the obvious one, isn't there, about, you know, if you've got AWS as your GCP, you've got three different sets of siloed skills. Um, and, you know, you've got three times the staff. If you had one way of doing things, you know, you just have one set of microservices engineers or, you know, auditors or reviewers or whatever, that's one. Um, there are lots of others. I'd like, like to let other people in on that. Yeah. I, like I, it, I guess... Yeah. That, Sorry, I was just gonna say. I was just gonna say as well. You you were saying about having different um, skilled engineers, and and for obviously from my background being in recruitment consultancy, is seeing those engineers with multi multiple skills in multiple cloud uh, platforms. The costs for having those sort of people just is exponential. It's it's massive compared to having someone who is just siloed into one um, one of the cloud providers. Avi, you were gonna you were gonna say that. Sorry. Yeah, I was just saying that uh, I think uh, the skill part David brought up. That's in that's a huge thing in itself. You have, you have to maintain skills, and they have to maintain long term. It's not a matter of just building it and dumping it. Right? You have to keep running it. That is one. Second is that uh, from the perspective of uh, you know reliability, resilience, security, all of those those costs will you you'll just have a lot of. Uh, chaos in the beginning, to be honest, because there's a lot of tools which will talk about how great they are, you know, they can support different clouds, 
but they don't really it's not the word single pane of glass is thrown around a lot it's not like that easy to do it you can uh, make it sound really good you know somebody says guy will say okay you know what i can just run it for you if you put my tool in everything everything happens all the cloud management platforms that that have come up recently uh or not recently they've been there some time so everybody promises that but it's, in reality it's not as great as it seems and uh, apart from the skill right i think again i think the cost itself of doing it is prohibit for very large companies it's not prohibitive of course they can do it but you only really need to do it if you have a compelling use case so if you want to use open ai you can only do it on azure right so that is a use case where you you don't really have a choice you if you're using if you're an aws customer today you will have to go to azure if you want to use open ai but beyond that the real again as i said in the previous earlier right the real uh, reason can only be commercial at least in today's one maybe after uh, two two years we may be in a different place but today right now the real reason can be commercial or an capability that does not exist anywhere else sorry rabbi go ahead please you muted rabbi sorry uh, i totally agree with that and uh, the answer we always get is that uh, it's coming right it's in the roadmap <laughs> I think as well as the skills thing that you mentioned is it's keeping the skills current because as the vendors change all of their tools, it's all well and good, you know, being trained up until the day now, but Microsoft or Azure or GCP or whoever are going to be announcing new features and new tools and actually making sure that the cloud engineers, be that in the security space or just cloud generally, have those um, up-to-date skills and also looking at what's coming on those roadmaps. You know, we, we, talk, we joke about roadmaps and how everything's on there, but they are still a valuable source of information of knowing, in theory, what will be coming up in the future, whether that's one month, one year, or one decade in the future, we don't know. But at least, you know, if we've got that in the back of our minds as our engineers are training or putting together those training journeys, they can at least start heading in different directions. They always say, don't they, to be, you know, a master of one cloud is difficult, to be a master of two is very, very difficult, and to be a master of three is completely impossible. And I think that's probably true. There's just so much going on. You've just got to, you know, play with it all the time. And it's a kind of 24 by 7 by 365 activity to be that good in three major clouds. It's uh, very difficult. You know, it's uh, like unicorns, isn't it? They're very, you must know, you know, it's, it's uh, very rare to say the least. I agree with that, folks. And I think, especially now, right, um, the difference between the mainstream providers is always pretty much negligible, right? As in, you pretty much can get whatever you want on any of the three major clouds, right? And uh, as you guys say, right, to me, in my view, the public cloud is a lock in by default. If you really want to get the power of it, Unfortunately, you have to accept the location. Plus, I mean, uh, I, I know we do, everybody talks a lot about lock-in. I mean, it's the same as using a fixed database vendor, right? Kind of. I, I mean, we never talked about lock-in when we use VMware, right? So you literally couldn't use anything other than <laughs> It wasn't a huge thing when we used VMware. And, but when it comes to public cloud, we talk a lot more about it. Just how you look at it. I think the... Uh, the security that you felt because you had your own service in your own data center with VMware, that's because it, because it's gone away. You just it, you have that uh, everybody has that mental uh, uh, worry that you know it's not my not only is it not my own data center and my data is somewhere else. So what if I get logged in? It's kind of the same. I mean, technology wise, 
I don't see a lot of difference between using VMware as my only virtualization platform versus using Azure as my data center platform. I guess that's the um, VMware view of things, isn't it? You can use VMware on Azure, VMware on AWS, VMware on Google, but you're locked in somewhere, aren't you? It's, uh, you know, you're always locked in by some sort of management tool or some sort of integration or connectors or sets of APIs. I agree. Absolutely. Well, um, I guess if nobody's got much more to add, we are coming towards the sort of uh, end of our time. So if everybody's happy, I'll sort I've of, just um, got one one thing to mention, Morgan, and something we haven't yeah, of talked about is um, in terms of business case, it's not really a business case, but it's a requirement, uh, government legislation. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of legislation. The EU Cloud Portability Code of Conduct was similar from the uh, UK FCA about outsourcing in cloud. Um, there's requirements to look at this, um, particularly for financial services. Um, and so that's another business requirement that's uh, sometimes overlooked. There's geographic issues with that, though, isn't there? So while some countries are promoting diversity across cloud, you've then got company uh, countries sorry, such as China, where you can only use a very small subset of approved um, cloud vendors. So it's there is no one size fits all for lots of companies. They, they can't be happy keeping everyone in the UK happy, and then that will be upsetting China or vice versa. So it's, it's finding that right balance and making sure that you've got the right people that understand the legislation to make sure that we're following the right bits of the right legislation in the right countries for the right use cases and unfortunately having to have different ways of doing things for different parts of the business that keep us in that compliance yeah i, I guess folks like um you know in china and russia it's a bit of a different case from everywhere else isn't it really but yeah i mean the, the, there are those issues and some of those you know going back to the um you know, benchmarking and compliance, some of it can be um, mitigated there, not all of it. There's, as you say, there's a lot of um, reviewing what the legislation means and what you can do with it, and it's a growing area. I think uh, uh, this, uh, and not just financial services, that is definitely one very important place where this is coming from, but the data sovereignty laws that are coming up, right? They're going to make life even more difficult. I think in, in that terms, I think EU might be the easiest because you could use any any EU provider and you're happy, right? But uh, with different countries coming up with laws where they say you cannot take our students outside our own country, uh, there's a, I, I'm not sure how that will play out in terms of uh, do you keep Canadian data only in Canada and then do you, do you keep Indian data in India and so on and so forth, right? So the kind of uh, model the providers have today where you have these regions in large geographies which everybody else uses if the sovereignty laws keep expanding and that seems to be what is happening at this moment at least it will become at some point the model of that entire region-based model will probably be a i don't know how what will what we'll do with that to be honest probably some of it around that data sovereignty is kind of cross regional agreements a bit like the eu gdpr and the uk gdpr you can see that sort of happening can't you i suppose that's one way interested yeah i think i think yeah, the, the gdpr actually i mean i i know that when we when it was done for the first time all of us i think uh, it was quite a big thing to do right but in in hindsight it's actually a fairly reasonable agreement in a lot of terms including allowing a processor to be outside but countries like china specifically where there's basically a blanket ban you can't take any data out of the country at all so if, yeah. if more countries adopt that kind of a very restrictive model, that is where I think uh, we will have a bit of challenge with a lot of small sites coming up in a lot of different places so that uh, any multinational company has the ability to 
provide the services to their employees in a given country. And then that obviously adds the all the uh, management and security and resilience headache around how do you ensure that those small regions existing in a country are kept secure and they are kept efficiently, running efficiently enough. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you'll have to duplicate things, right? And uh, it's not just only China and Russia, there are other countries now that insist that they are treated as a separate region on their own. Yeah, as you say, right? It's, uh, you'll have to see how, how this goes. Yeah, I think it would get uh, very complicated if every single country started doing that. <laughs> Yeah. You definitely have your work cut out for you. <laughs> so yeah, I guess if uh, if if we've got nothing else to add, then um, we'll we'll leave it there. Um, this has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank uh, David, Ali, Rabba, and James for providing their expert insights into securing the multi-cloud. And thank you for listening. If uh, you would, are listening and would like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at morgan.dagonal.evolutionjobs.co.uk and we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. If you're hiring for new roles or if you're looking for a new role within the security space, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, you can drop me a message too. I'm Stephen Mann and you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at Stephen with a PH dot Mann, M-A-N-N, at evolutionjobs.co.uk or you can visit us at evolutionjobs.com forward slash UK. Thanks again to all our guests and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.